Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. So welcome to a new week. Hello. I hope everybody had a good weekend. I did. I Me guess. too. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty good. good. Excellent. Well, we have lots to tell everybody today. The stock market is taking a beating again. The S&P 500 is officially in bear market territory. It looks like we're heading into a recession just in time for the midterm elections. We're going to talk about the economy today, as well as politics, some policy, current events. We also have several interesting stories that we wanted to tell everybody about. Um, I've been fascinated by this story uh, about General uh, John Allen. Yes. This this is crazy. Well, so we had the same. This story has been on both of our radars, right? It's been been making little headlines. Yeah, for all week. And every every morning we go, oh, yeah, there's that story about that. But, you know, like it's another Farah thing. Right. Not, you know, not necessarily the most news. If there's time, we'll we'll work it in. We'll work in a mention. And then (laughs) maybe we should have known this before, but I can't keep track of who's running what think tank. Sure. So John Allen was in the news last week. not even necessarily by name. They just said, oh, there's this retired general and he's being investigated by the Justice Department for violating uh, FARA, the the Foreign Agent Registration Act. And all that means is he he failed to fill out a form saying that he was representing a foreign government. Uh, He was lobbying on behalf of Gutter. Okay, no big deal. Well, It actually is a big deal because it turns out that the general they're talking about is General John R. Allen, a retired four star general who is the president of the Brookings Institution. And the reason why it's so important that he's the president of the Brookings Institution is that Brookings is the feeder think tank for the White House and the State Department in Democratic administrations, Mm -hmm. right? If you're looking for somebody to be the director or senior director for X, Y, and Z country at the National Security Council, you bring them from from Brookings Mm -hmm. or maybe one or two other think tanks. But Brookings is the granddaddy of the Democratic think tanks, just like the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute are the granddaddies for the Republicans. This is a very big deal. Now, another reason why it's a big deal is that all of a sudden, about five years ago, the government decided to start prosecuting people for not filling out the form, right? Everybody will remember Maria Butina, right? She uh, was accused of uh, violating FARA by not registering as a foreign agent uh, because she was lobbying on behalf of of a gun rights organization in Russia, okay? Now, people confuse the word agent or the words foreign agent. Mm-hmm. They say, oh my God, they're working for, for a foreign country, like they're spies. It's not a spy, it's a lobbyist, right? So she was accused of being a lobbyist and she didn't fill out the form. Well, the, the federal sentencing guidelines call for zero to six months in jail for, for failing to fill out the form. Because she was Russian and she was controversial, they gave her 18 months in solitary confinement. Outrageous. Well, what's this guy with four shiny stars on his shoulder going to get? Yeah, exactly. He did exactly the same thing that she was accused of doing. Only in a much more powerful position, right? Way Starting more Starting from a much more powerful position than just a sort of, you know, Maria Butina was a, a, she was nobody. a nobody. Yeah. 
Yeah. And also doing it from within the Brookings Institution. Yes, exactly. I mean, where, allegedly. Where he's clearly wielding power yeah. and authority yeah. inside the, the administration. Yeah. Listen, there's another story, too. I don't mean to well, jump Well, the other around. thing is we're going to talk a little bit later about the prospect, you know, the uh, waning prospects for any kind of new deal with Iran. But oh, like, totally. could it oh be that for some reason we have a, a Democratic establishment that seems really uninterested in normalizing relations, relations in any way with Iran and coming yeah. back to any kind yeah. of agreement with them? Could, could that result from a sort of pervasive gulf influence in all of their think tanks you know because this kind of stuff has been discussed for years yes. you know look if you look at the funding of you know cap and all of these the center for american progress and these sure. other big uh, institutional sort of democratic on, on the left tanks, and the right yeah you yes. see you see quite a lot of money coming from qatar and other uh, gulf countries and there's someone to whom with whom i used to be very close mm -hmm. and she was in charge as part of her duties as an executive at a defense contractor, uh, she was in charge of doling out a million dollars a year to the various think tanks. Mm -hmm. And because she liked Brookings and CSIS and the other, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Council on Foreign Relations. That's who got the money. Mm -hmm. So it's not just Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. It's Raytheon and McDonnell Douglas and Northrop Grumman and Boeing that are also paying for these uh, these fellows at the think tanks. It's weird how those interests seem to dovetail so neatly sometimes. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So corrupt. Yeah, exactly. so incredibly corrupt. Do you know? Did you know that there are twelve hundred different think tanks in the Washington D.C. area? There are only about ten that are important. Yeah. But there are 1,200 registered think tanks so, in the Washington area. So many ideas. Oh, my so God. So little change, which is sort of uh, reflected in the next tidbit that we are going to get to a little bit later. But uh, Joe Biden, boy, not, you Things know. Things are not good. It does. It really doesn't look good. I, he has seen, this is from a morning consult poll from today. Uh he, you know, approval, nowhere good. But no. significantly, uh, he's seen the biggest decline in approval among young voters. Yes. Right. Uh, his approval has fallen since January uh, among voters 18 to 34 by 20 percent. It went from 64 or 61 really percent approval to 41 percent approval uh, among Democrats. Only 43 percent of young Democratic voters believe he's following through on promises he made. Uh, this is compared to 60 percent of average Democratic voters. So, again, like young people really do feel let down yes. and left out of these processes. Um, there was a huge increase in uh, young voters who disapprove of Biden. Also, that 20 point drop sounds bad. Uh, it was something like tw a 28 point increase in people who disapprove of the job he's doing. In fact, among young people, his disapproval rating is now over 50%, which is shocking to yeah. me. Yeah. You know, we're going to well, talk about it later in the show. It's it's shockingly bad for a president. Yeah. It's shocking for a president who sort of campaigned on a Green New Deal That's and, right. you know, being concerned about the climate, et cetera, et cetera, and who has just been you know, now uh, pushing for Saudi Arabia to pump more oil, changing emission standards for gasoline, opening up new lands for, well, not stopping lands from being auctioned for drilling, 
uh, when a lot of critics would say he really could have done more, yes. et cetera. So yeah, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a bummer if you're the president. Is it surprising if you're a young person looking at this administration going, you're not really creating I, a future that I can live in? Yeah, no. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I would be surprised. We're going to talk about it later in the show with one of our guests, but there's, there's serious talk now in Democratic circles here in Washington about trying to convince Joe Biden to not run for president again. Yeah. And this appeared in Politico over the weekend. This used to be just a, a faint whisper. And now it's now it's, you know, everybody's talking about it. He can't win against any Republican that's being, you know, that's considered a serious uh, contender for the Republican nomination. Mm -hmm. He just can't win. And to make matters worse, Kamala Harris is even more unpopular than Joe Biden is. So they're they're talking the, these senior Democrats are already throwing names out there. Mm -hmm. Amy Klobuchar, for example, Cory Booker, um, Pete Buttigieg. Now, mind you, these are all I'm, people that ran last time yeah. and couldn't get out of single digits. And Pete Buttigieg did. Pete Buttigieg Kyle, was OK. Kamala Harris, yeah. of course, no notoriously unpopular. Uh, Amy Klobuchar didn't go anywhere. No. Who's the other one? He said Cory Booker. Cory Booker. Did Cory Booker even attend a debate? I think he went to a couple of them. Yeah. OK. Yeah. I mean, all those uh, Pete Buttigieg. I don't I was not a Pete Buttigieg fan and no. I was not going to, you know, I'm sure I, he's I, a very nice but guy. But he, I think objectively among the, that pool, he was he was the most popular. He was the most articulate, too. Yeah. I mean, people like people liked Pete Buttigieg. You know, yeah, I, I don't think did. I don't think we should pretend that didn't happen. And he, you know, probably came second in Iowa. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He said he won. So, you know, I, I think that you can't put him in the same category of the rest of those big losers. Yeah, this is going to be a really seriously tough time for the Democrats. And I'll tell you, the, the irony of this whole thing mm -hmm. is the only chance that Joe Biden has at winning reelection is if Donald Trump runs for president. Mm -hmm. because Trump is just about as unpopular as Biden is. And that might be enough to bring Democrats out on election day in one of those who do I hate less kind of elections. if we have to go through elections. Biden versus Trump again, again I don't know. Bad for the know. country. Hey, uh, you told me something today that just made me laugh out loud. Uh, it's this story with Rebel Wilson. Oh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is very, this is, I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's also sad. And, you know, she seems to be, whatever, Rebel, Rebel Wilson is a rich actress, but yeah. also I feel for her in this situation. Yeah. So um, Rebel Wilson came out, I think this was on Friday. I think I saw it on Friday anyway, mm -hmm. on Instagram, put up a picture of her and her girlfriend saying, you know, this is my announcing my new relationship to the world. I was looking for a Disney prince and maybe I should have been looking for a princess, right. you know, something like that. Yes. Cool. Okay. Rebel Wilson has a girlfriend. Um, then it emerges that what had happened was that the Sydney Morning Herald was uh -huh. going to run a story on this new relationship. And the man who was going to run this story uh, comes out on June 11th and writes a column whining about how unfair it is <laughs> that Rebel Wilson scooped the paper by announcing her own relationship online. Uh, he's de the writer who is a private columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald, this guy, An Andrew Hornery, which is a funny name. Shame um, he says he had written to her to say, you know, say, you know, we, we want to write about your relationship, blah, blah, blah. He writes in the column, big mistake. 
Wilson opted to gazump the story, posting about her new Disney princess on Instagram early Friday morning. I mean, so he has that big mistake is really what has come into feature here in the response. Uh Uh, A lot of people really mad saying, oh, sorry, you you threatened to out this woman. Yeah. And now you're complaining that she did the job herself. Right. People, uh, you know, writing to the paper, tweeting at the paper in a state of outrage. So then the paper comes out. And the editor, Bevan Shields, defends the paper yeah. saying, was he saying we made a mistake, right? The column, the column has been put, pulled. The columnist said, obviously, I made, I made a mistake. I feel very terrible. I never intended this to be, an, you know, an, uh, uh, an, a forced outing or anything else. And the editor has come out and said, we simply asked questions as standard practice and included a deadline for a response. I had made no decision about whether and what to publish. And the Herald's decision about what to do would have been informed by any response Wilson supplied. But this is really undercut by the whole big mistake business. So now he, too, is under fire and everyone is mad at the Sydney Morning Herald. And now you're getting the stories about a newsroom in disarray. People are furious. People are mad. Uh, You know, people are mad within the paper and without. But like, yeah, just a just a very shoddy a series of events here. I, I have to say, too, the Sydney Morning Herald is a serious paper. Yeah. It's not a rag. It's not like, you know, the sun in, in Britain. No. This is a serious morning paper. How a serious morning paper can be so tone deaf yeah. in 2022 and so disrespectful of someone's privacy. Yeah. That's the story. Yeah. To me. No, this is what people are saying, you know, and also, like, how can you possibly, I mean, the paper would say it is it is standard to include a deadline for a response. Uh, but I think people are also quite rightly saying, well, that's that you're, you're is not also quite response. rightly seen as a threat is seen yeah, as a threat. Sure. Yeah. Like we don't Rebel Wilson doesn't know if you're going to run the story or not, whatever right. she does. Um, yeah. Scandalous. Yeah. Also, the original column had said something about how Rebel Wilson probably had not like suffered homophobia because because of blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, come on, man. This is just yeah. Stupid. They just kept digging themselves deeper. They really did. The other story that I think is important that we we probably won't have time to get to in more detail later, but this is about, remember when the UK announced that it was going to just send a bunch of asylum seekers to Rwanda? Mm-hmm. Like now we're, you know, the, the government is going to start shuttling the people that it doesn't want to some country that is and, willing to pay a little and, bit. Yeah, these aren't Rwandans we're talking about. No, these aren't Rwandans, Rwandans that made its way no, they made their way to they're London. Folks from wherever who have made their way to London to seek asylum and uh, and are being refused for whatever reason. The first flights were scheduled to take place tomorrow, oh, but boy. it looks like they are going to be canceled. Uh, not because of any successful blanket challenge to the program, but because there are a bunch of individual challenges uh, that have been raised by different individuals who are going to be among that group who would be deported so you know good for them but also it's it's pretty unfortunate that they haven't been able to sort of mount a serious challenge to this as a policy and that is you know probably still coming down the line but in the meantime they're doing these sort of piecemeal efforts to try to challenge the status of different individuals who would be on that plane but just what an outrageous it's, what it's an outrageous shocking. cycle. Come, travel from wherever you're coming yeah, from to try Syria, to get asylum. in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Next thing and you know, get, you're in Rwanda. You've never heard of Rwanda. No. And now that's where they're shipping you off. Rwanda, to. land of opportunity. Exactly. I mean, this is not to dismiss Rwanda, but like, what's the capacity of Rwanda to absorb some of these people and help mm-hmm. them have good lives? Mm-hmm. You know, and what's Rwanda's responsibility? 
for any of this right. now, compared the, to the responsibility of the UK. And the, the Rwandans are, are supposed to be paid by the UK per person. That's not to say that they're going to use that money for housing and food and job training no. for these people. No, I mean, who knows, right? Yeah. I don't want to. Uh, yeah, yeah. So just a, another shoddy business there yeah. that we will keep our eye on. We're going to take a quick break and come back with a, a bunch of the stuff that we've already talked about <laughs> and a lot more. You'll hear it all here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we will be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, uh, getting into a, a bunch of news items that sound different, but that I think are probably connected by uh, their political expediency and mm -hmm. utility. We are going to talk a little bit about the back and forth between Joe Biden and Volodymyr Zelensky on who warned who about this pending invasion, which, you know, is probably not necessarily that important on its surface for, for what it is. Yeah. Uh, but I think represents a perhaps a shift that we should be paying attention to and how some of this is covered. We're going to get into more of Joe Biden's approval and uh, the really uh Pretty dishonest uh, blame game that is going on, notably at CNN, which never misses an opportunity to blame the left for something that they didn't do. And I really hope to get into the story of this disappearance and likely, you know, likely death of British journalist yeah. Dom Phillips and indigenous experts Bruno Pereira in the Amazon. Um, awful. Yeah, just awful. They They have been missing now for eight days. Really conflicting reports right now as to whether uh, whether they have been found, whether their belongings have been found. But it highlights the, you know, the genuine danger in reporting on, you know, re reporting that challenges corporate interests and reporting that, uh, you know, documents incursions against uh, indigenous lands and indigenous uh, areas that should be protected. Uh, we are hoping to bring on John Jeter. He's an author and two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist with more than 20 years of experience. He's a Washington Post, former Washington Post bureau chief. He's an award-winning foreign correspondent, but I think we are having some technical problems getting him. So we are going to continue that. But John, I want to talk to you about this back and forth between Biden and Zelensky. Yeah. yeah. Um, Joe Biden on Friday said the U.S. knew that Russia would invade. Uh, but Zelensky and others didn't want to hear it. Right. And of course, we were talking about uh, a potential invasion, mm -hmm. not an invasion in right. those weeks leading up to it. And so, right. of course, we remember Zelensky repeatedly saying, calm down. Everything's as things started to heat up. Right. Yes. He was sort of warning, warning, warning. And then when the U.S. started to say, oh, no, it's this is happening. We've got dates. We've got times like we're moving and shaking now. Zelensky was the one saying. Let's chill. Hold on. I think we, he was trying to defuse the situation as yeah, best he could. Yeah, and yeah. was he trying to keep his country's economy from from going totally right. haywire over the news? That is absolutely possible. Right. Um, yeah. Z Zelensky's advisors, of course, have responded to this by saying Ukraine knew what was going on uh, and also saying that they called for preventative sanctions to encourage Russia to withdraw troops and, and de-escalate the situation, which to me 
I don't know, John. Is, is that an indicator of how serious that that would be? You know what I mean? Like the the efficacy of sanctions. Right. Being what it is, which is, uh, you know, negligible, right, right. A- at best. Yes. Uh, I don't know how seriously we should take that as a preventative effort. I, you know, I, I'm enjoying this whole back and forth because, mm-hmm. because none of this, this finger pointing matters. No. Does it, does it really matter? Like, why would Joe Biden even engage in something like this? Does it really matter who believed what, when? Well, I have a guess. Here's my guess. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't think I I think that what is really happening is that support for sending huge amounts of money and weapons to Ukraine is is less popular than some national leaders would like it to be. I think you're right. Perhaps Joe Biden among them or his party among them. And uh, we are now seeing instead of countries taking credit for how the war is going, we are seeing the beginning of distancing. Uh, I think that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Well, let's see. Let's see if John Jeter agrees with us. I think we have him on the line. John, how you doing? Not yet. All right. Well, we'll try the next one. Yeah, I think I think this might be what's happening, John. I, I, I think that I think that there's starting to be a little bit of, oh, well, it's there not really it's not our fault. Right. Right. But why? Why now? Is it well, is it because Europeans are also getting a little bit tired of this already? And this this unending funding of of ongoing war yeah although european funding is a fraction of what yeah, the united states said no the the other thing that's going on here is uh on june 17th the european commission is going to decide whether it should greenlight ukraine's candidacy yes which of course is the beginning of a, of a process that takes a year or or sometimes much longer oh, yes right what I have read today is that the commission seems likely to give the go ahead for the candidacy to continue, uh, probably with conditions and also uh, over some objections. Right. The yes. Netherlands has voiced objections. Denmark has sent a diplomatic note yes. warning that Ukraine doesn't fulfill criteria related to stability of institutions, guaranteeing mm-hmm. democracy, the mm-hmm. rule of law, human rights, respect for and protection of minorities. Not surprising. No, you know what I mean? That all. seems like a very accurate assessment of what Ukraine was before the war and, you know, yes. which has only, I think, been worsened by being embroiled in this conflict. Without a um, doubt. France and Germany are also not like saying they're not sort of raw, raw on board here, although no. they're not being quite as forthright. No, this uh, is going to their... be extraordinarily expensive uh, yeah. for the for the rest of the European Union if Ukraine is finally given the green light. And another thing, too, if I could interrupt you for Please. just one second. uh you know, Ukraine has a reputation or had a reputation before the war uh, of being one of the most corrupt countries in the world, not just in, in what, you know, what would be the European Union in the whole world. Mm-hmm. I've got a I've got a good friend who is married to a Ukrainian woman and um, they uh, foolishly invested in a uh, in a gas station car wash mm-hmm. combination. Um, through her brother who lives in Ukraine. They bought it from uh, from a businessman. And as soon as the deal was affected and the money was transferred, um, he sued them to keep the money and get the gas station back. And so they said, this is ridiculous. It turns out he had ties to organized crime. They started firebombing the place. So my friend went to court and won. Well, then the gangster appealed. And bribed the the appellate judge. And so my friend lost. Mm -hmm. Then they appealed to the Supreme Court of Ukraine. And his attorney said, look, at the Supreme Court, 
we need two of the three votes, and it's going to cost you $15,000 for each of the two judges that we need to bribe. Yeah. So either you want the gas station or you don't want the gas station. It all comes down to who you're willing to bribe. Yeah. And unfortunately, the moral of the story is that's daily life in Ukraine before the war. Yeah. So it, it was a problem, corruption. Yeah. And so the EU promising to sort of take on a country with that level of yeah. corruption is something that members are now, despite, you know, uh, saying a lot of fine things mm -hmm. about wishing to welcome Certainly. Ukraine into the European community, of which, of course, it is, a, you know, a member in its heart. Uh, there might be some delay. And you also have this Reuters story quoting some anonymous French officials saying uh, the EU must come out of the Ukrainian crisis stronger, not weaker. And yes. I think you can read a bit into that. Oh, yes. And so this is the question, right? It, it, does the EU decide that it wants to go down a road that ends with Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia as members? Right. Or does it fudge around? Does it create these never ending formulas for membership or new mechanisms for cooperation that are not membership? Right. And Ukraine keeps saying, right. hey, you, you made us these promises, right? You, you have, have waxed rhetorical about all of you know, these things that are going to seriously affect our future. We would like to see some action to match. We're going to see once again if we've got John Jeter here to, to make a prediction as to whether Ukraine will get what it wants. John, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Not as well as we'd like to hear you, but I think we can work with it. What do you think? What do you think? Do you think Ukraine is just going to get the runaround from the EU forever? Or do you think they are going to actually bite the bullet and start this process for real? I don't know. I, I, would, uh, I would suspect that not even the EU knows, right? I think they're, you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we're making now, uh, and by me, I, by we, I mean, uh, by, I'm, I'm including myself, is that yes. we think that the EU and the United States and the West as a whole has an idea of what it's doing. Like, they, they have an end game here. And I don't think they do. I think they're like chickens running around with their heads cut off. I think the mm -hmm. is very fluid. And, uh, you know, Ukraine joined the EU. Uh, I, I, would, I would imagine they're not going to get much pushback from, from Russia on this because, of course, it's not NATO. And so, uh, you know, that, that barrier at least is not there. So I would imagine it's very possible that Ukraine could join the EU. But the, the question I would have is, does that make the EU stronger or weaker? Uh, particularly at a time when inflation is skyrocketing. And, uh, you know, and I just can't get much news from about the German economy. But I suspect that Germany is in real trouble uh, with the sanctions against Russia energy, the rising cost of energy, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I just, I, I don't know this, but I wonder if there's not a much more robust debate in Germany about um, this alliance with Ukraine, and no matter how much the United States and Facebook and all the social media outlets try to deny it, Ukraine is the vanguard of Nazism in the world today. So I just wonder if, uh, you know, this is an all very fluid that they're kind of trying to build the plane while they're flying it. And, um, you know, it, it just, I just keep, I keep coming back to that old Fred Hampton quote about, you know, answers that don't answer, explanations that don't explain, and conclusions that don't conclude. It seems like every day we have more and more answers that don't answer uh, that seem to sort of surface. The other thing that I wonder is if, you know, if the EU creates this, a sort of like off-ramp for the Ukraine or the U.S. starts to slow its funding for the war. I wonder if those events should make us 
assess the conflict differently. You know what I mean? Which seems sort of strange and backward, right? To ask whether the response to the war should color our understanding of how it came about. Uh, But, you know, we had weeks of uh, incredibly positive sort of cheerleading reporting on on how Ukraine was doing on the ground and that Ukraine was going to win and Vladimir Putin was, you know, going to be overthrown. And I mean, you know, it, it, it wasn't true at the time. Uh, and I think that people in better position to know than John and I sh- should have known that. And so if that all dries up, I mean, I think you're right. I think they are constantly trying to build the plane while they're flying it. Should that make us look differently at like maybe the plane they were trying to build before? I guess the question is who, what we are you referring to? Like, I, you know, I think those of us who understand that you need to sort of see different sources of information to understand this war, this is going sort of as we expected, right? But for the broader American public, at least, or American public, at least, um, I, I, you know, I just think there's a, there's a crisis of faith that sort of mustings more and more each day. And this Ukrainian um, conflict, which Russia is winning um, forcefully, right? Like it's not, it's, this is not close, which of course any military expert would have predicted, right? Ukraine just mm-hmm. cannot contend with Russia in any military conflict. They, you know, it, the, the only way out is if it's a negotiated settlement. Everyone who is paying attention knows that. Uh, mm-hmm. But how do they solve this now? How do they solve this war that Ukraine uh, is losing badly, that Russia is not going to be weakened, but they're going to come out much stronger? And, mm-hmm. and I think the, the um, uh, not just Russia, but China as well, right? As we see more and more allies, or more and more sort of clients that the United States are moving towards that, United, that, that Russia-China orbit. And so how does the United States sell this? I don't think they care. I think that, you know, there's always this crisis of faith. Uh, you know, you can call it Putin's price hike as much as you want. I don't think the average American is buying that. And if they don't quite have the same understanding of the conflict that you and I might have, right, mm-hmm. you still know that the United States is untrustworthy in describing the phenomena that afflicts us. And so, you know, there's this crisis coming up. How we will respond, I, I can't say, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, the standard, the standard answer is, you know, we're probably going to go towards socialism or fascism. And mm-hmm. I, 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 I hate to say which one I, my guess is, my bet is on. But, yeah, there's this uh, deepening crisis of faith in all American institutions, including most prominent, both, both, both including the media, political parties, mm-hmm. and that just seems to be sort of coming to a head. Let's talk about what's happening in the United States. John and I, at the beginning of the show, talked about Joe Biden's approval rating just really plummeting, especially among young people. Uh, It's fallen by more by 20 percentage points among 18 to 34 year olds. Uh, Disapproval has grown by 28 percentage points. Women approve of him far less than men, 61 percent to 78 percent. And only 43 percent of young Democrats say Biden has been keeping the promises he made during 2020. And a CNN story on these results, blames what the author terms the fan fiction left, right, which is this group that he says imagines an alternative universe where the Republican Party, with its embrace of Trump, is not the main problem of U.S. of American politics. 
Instead, the hindrance to the enactment of just and beneficial public policy is lack of will within the Democratic Party. And the story, of course, invokes the horrors of some of the modern Republican Party saying, you know, uh, powerful Republicans believe in this great replacement theory, right? Voter suppression and racist gerrymandering are prevalent. States are passing legislative assaults on women's rights and uh, LGBTQ rights. You know, it's racism, sexism, homophobia. And, you know, it's a very good shaming tactic, right, for the left to say, oh, you want Nazis in the White House. Uh, And so I wonder how we should respond to this, because, of course, it's not as though the concerns that he raises aren't legitimate. But are they a reason to continue to stick with a with the sort of centrist or right Democratic Party uh, candidates that the party establishment will only seem to allow? I, you know, I don't know what we should do, but I, I can, I can, uh, I, I'm fairly certain that what we're going to do is we're going to stay home in the next election, in the midterm election. I do think that this crisis of faith that I referenced earlier, uh, I think it's at a, at a historic level. I think mm-hmm. people will just not vote. I think the Republicans will win both houses of Congress in a landslide. I think, I, I have no idea what the Democrats are planning for 2024 in terms of running Joe Biden again. I imagine there's a very robust conversation going on right now about replacing him at the top of the ticket. Doesn't matter. There's no one that they can that they can put up there. Well, no, that's not true. There's no one they would put up there. Because Bernie Sanders, I think, even now still uh, could be any Republican, um, mm-hmm. although he's putting up there in age as well. Uh, but I don't think there's anyone they will put up there. So I think what, what you know again we have this. I think uh, you know it's almost. It's not just a crisis of faith. I think it's becoming a, a constitutional crisis where increasingly the American people want one thing and they get this complete opposite. We want, you know, uh, 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 young people, uh, people of college debt, want a debt relief, $40 billion sent to Ukraine, $54 billion, I guess, in total, sent to Ukraine. Uh, we want single-payer health care, and we get, uh, I, I believe I heard, the highest hike in Medicare prices uh, in yep. history. So, you know, we, we continue to get, we get, the American people continue to demand one thing and they get completely, they get something else, both from Democrats and Republicans. And quite frankly, you can make the, you can make the case they, they, that the Democrats are even less responsive than Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for all of us, Donald um, um, Trump did not start uh, a proxy war in Ukraine. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, we just got, you know, what's, what's the Dorothy Parker quote? Uh, this isn't just plain terrible. This is fancy terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How much do you think that these um, I mean, I, I think that there is a genuine desire behind these public hearings on the January 6th riot. I think there's a genuine attempt to take what happened seriously. But I also think we have to see it as a political effort by Democrats to, again, like set themselves up as uh, the, the bulwark protecting us from from these monsters. And I wonder how well you think they're going to work. I don't think it's going to work at all. I just think people are much more concerned about the, the, the bread and butter issues of daily life, you know, how much a, 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 a quart of ice cream costs and gasoline. And, and, and this is just not something I think that's very high on, our, on people's radar. I think, mm-hmm. again, I think it's going to feel very badly. I think the Democrats uh, are going to have to either, they're either going to produce or they're going to perish, I think, certainly in the short term. And I don't see any real efforts to redeem the party in the long term. So, uh, again, you know, it's really shaping up to be a crisis that no one alive has ever seen before. 
Oh, that doesn't sound very fun, John. <laughs> all right. That's all. That's all we've got time for. That was a wow. That was a, a strong note to end on there. John Jeter. Uh, he's a former Washington Post uh, bureau chief. He's an author. You can find more of his work on johnjeter.com. That's J-O-N-J-E-T-E-R. John, we'll talk to you again soon on a better connection. And we're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we will come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou getting into some domestic economic news and also taking a look at what went down in Singapore at the Shangri-La Dialogue a Defense Summit, where Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met his Chinese counterpart for the first time. We're joined for all of this by John Ross. He's an author and economist and a senior fellow of the Chiangyang Institute at Renmin University of China. John, thanks for joining us again. Or maybe not. We'll see if we have him on the line in a minute. I want to talk about uh, the possibility of recession in the United States. Uh, possibility maybe too weak a term. Like it seems as though right. it probably is going to be around the corner. Uh, the Federal Reserve, I didn't know this sort of snuck up on me, but the Federal Reserve, I guess, is going to raise interest rates again this oh, week. It sounds like that snuck up on the Federal Reserve, too, Maybe. because I they mean, just I, said, what, a month ago I think that they, they were, didn't think it would be necessary to raise rates again. I thought they had the plan to raise them steadily for the next six months. Oh, is that what it was? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so it was going to be corrected. steady, steady increases, uh, half a point, perhaps 0.75. And the next mm. one we will see. Uh, this is, as we've discussed a lot, the only mechanism that the U.S. has decided that it has to combat yes. inflation. And, this and is we the know how this plays out. Yeah. Because this is exactly what happened in 1980. Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah. going to it's going to drive up uh, unemployment. It, it'll kill inflation, which is going to be great, but mm -hmm. it's going to drive up unemployment. It's going to force us into a, a recession, perhaps deeper than we otherwise would have had. And uh, people are going to be in a lot of hurt. Yeah, I mean, this is what I think is is interesting and sort of worth reflecting on because we sort of talk about these things in a in a in a global sense, right, or mm -hmm. a larger sense. So like, here's what we do: you push this lever, blah blah right. blah. But there are human beings, uh, you know, who will be affected by this. And so, yeah, the the Federal Reserve has decided the only the only way we can control inflation is by manipulating interest rates. Like right. our government's decided that. And so now the Federal Reserve is starting to signal that higher unemployment rates might be a necessary conf consequence of their efforts to damp inflation by raising interest rates. I think necessary consequence is a very interesting yeah, that's, phrase. That's harsh. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it would probably be more honest to say that the Fed is trying to increase unemployment mm -hmm. because that's what they're going to do to to cut inflation. Yes. And in a system that's like what the, it comes down to. Yeah. And in a system like the one we have, uh, with such a, a paltry social welfare system, I, I feel like it's worth, you know, uh, contemplating the cruelty mm -hmm. uh, of this mechanism to workers. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, this is what we've decided. We, we've talked on this show to other experts about the counterinflationary impact of, of investment. But we don't seem to That's have a right. government in place that is going to be able to get behind that. I think That's it right. is true 
that on this issue, the Biden administration's messaging has also been really bad. It's really not clear what they what they want people to believe and what they want people to to think about, you know, how they understand their actions affecting regular Americans. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's it's worth going like, you know, it's it's all very well and good to sort of look at diagrams on a on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. But what does it mean to try deliberately throw a bunch of people out of work in the United States? And should we say, I guess that's the only way. There, there's got to be a better way to to tame inflation. There has to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what it is. I'm not a I'm not an economist, but you know, I wasn't kidding a moment ago when I said people are going to be in for a world of hurt. We're talking about harming families here. Yeah. We're talking about taking away people's livelihoods uh, just to tame inflation. So I I don't know. This is going to be tough. Yeah, and I mean, I, of course, inflation is is also very hard to live with, right? It's it not is. as though we could you know really for a long time probably tolerate That's inflation right. at eight and a half percent. And I'd like to know uh, from from John Ross when we finally get him mm-hmm. um, why the United States. Uh, hasn't resorted to fracking. I happen to be philosophically opposed to fracking, Mm -hmm. but it's always been my understanding that once oil hit $60 a barrel, Mm -hmm. fracking was cost effective. Mm -hmm. Well, we're at like $122 a barrel right Mm -hmm. now. So why aren't we fracking? I don't know. Or are we not fracking? I don't know. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't think that we had ever stopped, John. Oh, yeah, yeah. We stopped when it went under 60. Oh, OK. Yeah. I, and I only know that because because a, a petroleum engineer friend of mine and under went, went out of uh, went out of uh, lost his job. It hasn't been under 60 for a little oh, while. It's been, yeah, two years. Yeah. A year, yeah. whatever it's been. Yeah. He was thrown out of work and, and he said, oh, damn, oil went under 60 and that was it. Yeah. And yeah. then he just completely changed careers because <laughs> he was tired of the cyclical nature of the whole thing. I mean, and we also, it's it's also that this is happening in plain sight, right? You had this Yahoo News story um, today saying that the consequence of this will be a recession, right? And I, I think Absolutely. it's probably not too um, great a leap to see that the, the Federal Reserve is deliberately, is deliberately going to engineer a recession in order to end inflation. Yes. And you have this not coming from me, but from the former vice chair of the Fed, Alan Blinder, saying you know, uh, Jerome Powell doesn't want to let the R word slip out of his mouth in a positive way that we need a recession. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of euphemisms and uh, he will use them. Right. And yes. so, again, we're going to deliberately move the U.S. economy into a recession. And, you know, the, the recovery from the last recession was never really complete. No. For, it was complete for, for businesses, but for particularly uh, for black families, for black homeownership, yes. all that we didn't ever recover. And so, again, you yes. can you can look at paper and go, OK, well, I, I guess the mechanism we need to stop inflation is a recession. Well, that, we really shouldn't just be sort of um, complacent mm-hmm. about that and, and sort of fatalistic about that, because the, the people who are going to be affected, who are the most vulnerable, are, are never made whole. Mm-hmm. And so I think like just using this as a trick to get inflation under control yes. when it means, you know, again, once again, permanently setting back huge chunks of this population yes. is something that we shouldn't take without at least a, a lot of discussion. Right. I agree. Yeah, I agree. This is going to be difficult, painful and long term. Yeah, <laughs> sounds very bad. Sorry to be such a downer. No, no, but, I think but that's, it's it's true. I think that's yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, yeah, and let me add one thing, please. I I happened to lose my job two months before the last major recession hit. I lost my job in in December of at the very end of December of 2007, 
and the recession hit in February of um, of 2008. Mm-hmm. And it was 12, 13, 14 months before I even had the prospect of work. Mm-hmm. I, I know how hard that is, how painful it is. And, you know, if you're in an area of the country where um, where the economy isn't going to come back as quickly as it is in some of the major cities, it's that much worse. Mm-hmm. You know, I was lucky I had I had a good education. I had lots of experience. I lived in a major metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. What about the people who don't mm-hmm. have those? So th- this could be very, very bad. Yeah, and the other thing is, not. you know, the United States is a part of a, the global economy. Mm-hmm. So what happens mm-hmm. when we do this? Which That's is the right. same question people are asking of China. China China's choosing to lock down to prevent mm-hmm. the spread of COVID and, and taking quite a lot of criticism for that decision because, you know, oh, it has effects beyond your borders. Yes. So, you know, nations get to make these decisions. China was making a decision that it felt was in the interests of its yes. population. Uh, whose interests this decision will, uh, you know, further in the United States? Mm-hmm. Probably, probably not the, you know, the common people. That's right. The other thing that I wanted to talk about in this segment, John, is this Shangri-La dialogue, right? Which is this defense yeah. summit in Singapore. Uh, this is the first face-to-face meeting of U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and his Chinese counterpart. Uh, and of course, there were criticisms from both sides, particularly over the issue of Taiwan. Uh, but it also, this seems to me to be a significant outcome. Uh, it seems that both sides are willing to establish better lines of communication mm-hmm. between the American and Chinese militaries. And you've spoken before about how important those lines of communication actually are. So I think that we can see this as positive. Uh, and a Chinese spokesperson afterward described the meeting uh, as candid but positive, which yes. is a lot better than Antony Blinken's first meeting with Wang Yi, yes. his foreign policy counterpart. Indeed. So, yeah. So the, you're right. This was a good thing. And frankly, we didn't expect it to to amount to much. Um, our uh, our expectations were certainly exceeded. Yeah. You know, the, the Shangri-La uh, summit or whatever, whatever word they're using to describe it. It's very much like Bilderberg, for example, in that it's kind of sort of shrouded in secrecy. Uh, but what it is, is a gathering of of Pacific Rim defense leaders and defense contractors. At the same time, while the likes of, you know, as I said, Raytheon and McDonnell Douglas and Northrop Grumman and Boeing et al. are there trying to make deals and sell systems and weapons and jets and drones and what have you, these defense officials and diplomats are also meeting on the sidelines. That's where the real work is getting done. That's where the diplomacy is happening. And Lloyd Austin, I think, so far in the first year and a half of the Biden administration has been underestimated in his ability to sort of keep a lid on things and make sure the trains run on time. Has been very quiet. Yes, DOD has has been very, very quiet uh, on China as opposed to the State Department. Yes. And DOD also seems to have been, um, wait, Remember when there was that pe- conflicting information coming from it would seem like intelligence and the Defense Department on Ukraine? Oh, yeah. And you would have the Defense Department sort of pushing back on oh, some yeah. of this stuff about, uh, you know, what what information Americans gave Ukraine to achieve what ends. So, yes. yeah, maybe a, uh, a surprisingly a sort of calming force there in uh-huh. DOD. 
How crazy is that? Yeah. You know, I, I've told I've said of course before, we're sort of leaving out Afghan the debacle of Afghanistan. Of course, of course, which mm-hmm. was completely blown. Yeah. But one of the things that I learned uh, in the uh, in the months prior to the Iraq War was that the people who spoke out most stridently against war were the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Mm-hmm. It was the the civilian uh, DOD leadership that wanted to go to war. Ugh, so gross. But the generals were like, whoa, wait a minute. This is a bad idea. And they were ordered to do it. Here's uh, some other things that came up from Austin's remarks uh, at the Shangri-La on Saturday. He called the Indo-Pacific the U.S.'s priority theater of operations and at the heart of American grand strategy. Which, you know, okay, okay. It's sort of interesting. I mean, we've been saying we're going to do this shift, shift, yes, pivot to pivot, Asia, pivot to right. Asia for 12 years now, yes. I think. So, okay, maybe we're there. Um, he also noted that for the first time, a U.S. Coast Guard commandant had yeah. joined the dialogue, showing how important Southeast Asia is to the Coast Guard. So the U.S., <sighs> I mean, I just say this because... This is the name is the Coast Guard, guys. We have a Navy. I yeah, understand. Guard the doggone coast. I know. And let the Navy do its job. No, they you know, the, just in, until until the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, mm-hmm. the Coast Guard was housed in the Department of Transportation, not in the Department of Defense. Oh, they took it away from Buttigieg. Yeah, they took no, it I mean, away from transportation. Thing. Yeah, the, the Coast Guard is going to be deploying a cutter to Southeast Asia next year on a permanent basis. And the, this is not the first time. I had to look at the Coast Guard. Coast Guard's international international force laydown, and they have a, a handful of other permanent presences where I guess they do uh, mar- marine inspection, investigation, international port security operations, blah blah blah. But again, it's just like we do really consider that we should, by right, be the bosses of the world. And this is the context yes. I want to put this other comment in. Of course, there was a lot of discussion about Taiwan, not quite sure. as inflammatory as some of the other, yeah. some of the stuff, frankly, that not. Joe Biden has said, Yeah, you know, right. um, but Biden needs to be reined in on Taiwan. Well, Austin was talking about Taiwan and about Chinese aircraft flying near the island, which is like a great headline generator, you know, oh, Chinese aircraft be- breach this or that, you know, they, they fly around. Um, Austin said, maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait isn't just a U.S. interest. It's a matter of international concern. But yeah, 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 it's not just a U.S. interest. It's probably very much a Chinese interest and a Taiwanese right. interest. And again, it is reflective of a right. sort of attitude where, you know, as we watch this conflict in Ukraine play out, you know, how much of our how much of this really is Ukrainians dying uh, for U.S. interests, yeah. whether they are immediate U- interests or, you know, this this ship that we or plane that we had been building while we were flying it in Ukraine. Now that's come to disaster. Yes. You know, and so there is, I, I'm sure I would think if I was just a regular person living on Taiwan, I really would not want to be mentioned in the same breath as Ukraine, right. which is happening more and agree. more. I would agree. Yeah, I just think it's worth it's worth considering. The other thing that I um, got into when I started looking this up is uh, that so there's been all this um, hand wringing about China maybe building a naval base in Cambodia. Yes, that they are maybe taking over this uh, reup naval base. In southern Cambodia, China, China and Cambodia both say that's not what's happening. People say, no, this of course, this is what's happening. Uh, you know, China and Cambodia are saying, no, this is just some kind of maintenance investment deal, whatever. Um, but the, the U.S. in in trying to get 
other countries sort of back into its orbit and discouraging them from working with China consistently invokes this idea of a debt trap, the yeah. Chinese debt trap. Don't right. let the Chinese come and invest in your infrastructure. Right. And, you know, pay, pay for all these things that you actually want and right. advocate for, because then you are going to get stuck with all of this. Debt. Yes. So I looked into that, you know, in Cambodia, the U.S., uh, gave a loan of about $270 million to the government of Lon Nol. It was the U.S. sort of puppet. He overthrew uh, the Sihanouk government. Sihanouk had been the, uh, both King. the prince, but also right. an elected prime minister. Uh, yeah. uh, and then, of course, the government of Lon Nol uh, lasted about five years before it completely collapsed. He fled to the United States. Um, and then the U.S. bombed Cambodia and Laos illegally throughout the course of our declared war on Vietnam. And all that time, the loan continued to accrue interest. Oh, my God. And so all that time, Cambodia has been asking the U.S. to forgive it, which I think is very reasonable considering you, you made a deal with your own sort of puppet government. That government collapses, uh, you know, uh, spectacularly and, and horrifyingly. And Cambodia goes through this sort of nightmare of the, the 70s and early 80s. Um, and yet you still want it back. And as, as recently as like last year, the Cambodian government had put forward a plan to try to either get the interest rate reduced from 3% to 1% and to pay the loan back gradually, which has grown from $270 million to, um, it varies, but either 500 million or 700 million, or to um, forgive it or to somehow convert it into development aid for Cambodia. And I don't know what that would be, but I imagine maybe it's just the U.S. going, okay, you know what, don't give us this money, and instead you use it for, for whatever. And the U.S. has continued to refuse. So, you know, again, like it, we like to accuse other countries of, uh, you know, using their foreign policy and using their sort of uh, diplomacy to advance their own economic interests and, and trap other nations into their orbit. But the U.S. is doing strong arming, again, Cambodia of all countries. You know, Cambodia, along with Laos, is the least, a least developed country in Southeast Asia. If you've ever been to Cambodia, you would, it would be absolutely immoral for the Cambodian government to give a cent to the United States government. You know, considering the U.S. role in the last several decades of Cambodian history. And no reparations were ever paid for the bombing of Cambodia. Is that right? During the Nixon administration? I mean, we bombed them illegally for for years. I do not know. I, I know that um, there the U.S. used to. I mean, the U.S. also bombed Laos illegally yes. for years, the most bombed country yeah, in, in the, the world, world. and uh, ref, you know refused to acknowledge it for a very long time. And then once it was acknowledged, you know, pay pay a pittance for things like cleaning out cluster bombs. Right. right? There right. was a time when New, Ze- I think New Zealand was giving more to Cambodia for demining than the United States. I do think Obama announced like a sort of big new investment toward that. And so there's been some progress made toward, you know, at least helping, helping undo some of those, you know, the, the damage of the past. Although honestly, that is, that is also a stain that you can never wipe out. Mm-hmm. So again, as we are hand-wringing over China, perhaps wanting to have two naval bases in Southeast Asia, right? right? In its own region. Right. And talking about, you know, the specter of, of uh, Chinese debt traps. We should, you know, probably take a look at, at, you know, what our economic policy is toward countries because we like to pretend it's a lot 
it's a lot kinder and gentler than it is. You know, this has happened. I I hate to keep bringing up Yemen, but Yemen, we can learn we so should bring much. Up Yemen. Yeah, we Yemen should. should be discussed. We can learn so much from Yemen. Uh, Yemen had um, a disaster. Oh, I think it was during the the Obama administration. The best of my recollection, it was a it was an earthquake. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, countries around the world rallied to provide aid and the U.S. provided a pittance, mm-hmm. a couple of million bucks. Mm-hmm. And the, the Yemenis made this list that they released to the media of what countries gave what. And they did this. They said to thank these countries and the international community for coming together and, you know, the, the Saudis had given this much and the Italians and the Danes. And we were talking some serious money. Yeah. And the U.S. was like the 14th on the list. We had given uh, some change that we had in our pockets. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much it. And then we got angry at the Yemeni government for embarrassing us by going public with what we had provided, which was almost nothing. Yeah, yeah. And Amen. the State Department just couldn't understand why. The Yemenis were offended that we wouldn't come through for them. You know, emergency aid. Yeah. Clean water. We have these. We have. Oh, is it time? Yeah, to, we yeah, got sorry, sorry. Just getting on a roll. We'll, we'll, you know what? We can get to to the next hour sure. for sure. We're going to take a break here on Political Misfits and, and come right back with more news, politics and culture. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Mm-hmm. We should tell our listeners that we're having some technical difficulties mm-hmm. today, some computer problems, but that's not going to stop the news. Yeah. Doggone it. So Finally, finally, we get a chance to talk, John. <laughs> that's right. Listen, ask me my opinion about things. Well, I wanted to talk about Iran for a minute. Two Iranian aerospace employees who were also members of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps died under mysterious circumstances mm-hmm. yesterday. Um, one of them died in a single car accident and the other just died. Mm-hmm. Nobody is saying how. Um, they were both identified in the Iranian media as martyrs, which tells me that something untoward happened to them. Um, even the Israeli press is saying that the Israeli government may have killed these two aerospace technicians as part of a long-standing effort to target the IRGC and Iran's aerospace sector. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of background there. We can, we can get to that in a moment. Uh, but also over the weekend, Venezuela and Iran signed a 20-year cooperation agreement. Mm-hmm. That was after Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro thanked Iran for sending much-needed fuel to Venezuela despite U.S. sanctions. Um, And also, Israel over the weekend told its citizens to avoid Istanbul, or if they're already in Istanbul, to leave the city immediately after reports that vacationing Israelis could be kidnapped or killed by Iranian intelligence operatives. So something's up over there. Um, I wanted to talk about this this aerospace thing. Mm Mm-hmm. 
It's. I have to be careful with what I say too. Uh, <laughs> clearly. Okay. But uh, the conventional wisdom is, uh, that's how I'm going to put it. The conventional wisdom is that while the United States, uh, U.S. intelligence services Mm -hmm. target the Iranian nuclear and aerospace program Mm -hmm. from abroad Mm -hmm. um, in operations that have been well documented in the media because most of them have failed, Mm -hmm. the Israelis are far more hands on. Mm -hmm. We know from the Israeli media, for example, that the Israelis are likely responsible for multiple assassinations of Iranian um, scientists, Mm -hmm. Iranian researchers, Iranian technicians. These are people who work in the Iranian nuclear program, Mm -hmm. in the aerospace uh, sector. And they do this not when these people are outside the country going to seminars or symposia. They somehow do it inside Iran. Yeah. It's amazing to me. A highway ambush was the last one, right? Uh, yes. Or maybe not the last one, the one before the, the last, right? Hi- yeah, highway ambush. Th- there was one a week and a half ago, right outside Tehran. Mm-hmm. A week and a half ago, there was one on May 31st. There were two yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been six so far this year, six mm-hmm. assassinations uh, of scientists so far this year. Um, on the one hand, my hat is off to the Israelis if they're really doing it because uh, it's incredible to me. Mm. On the other hand, talk about a war crime. I mean, you can't do stuff like this. No, but they do it consistently, right? All the time. Or, or Iranian scientists are being murdered by other people, their, their fellow Iranians yes. pretty uh, frequently. But yeah, I mean, if even some of these assassinations are attributable to Israel, yes. as I think seems extremely likely. Uh, then, yeah, this is just allowing Israel to get away with war crimes, which is not new. No. Considering what it is allowed to get away with in terms of its treatment, not only of its Gaza population locked in a giant open air prison, but just of Palestinians in in Israel proper. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, because it's not new doesn't mean we shouldn't be talking about it. No, it we, should, sh- we should be protesting it, not just talking about it. We should be writing about it. We should be marching about it. Yeah. This is it's an it's a violation of international law. You can't do things like this. And it should make us question again what what our government in particular, particularly our State Department, uh, continues to say its mission is, which is to uphold the rules based international order. Right. Uh, the rules based international order, which has been, uh, you know, by yes. this is demonstrated to not be any rules at all. Right. But to be the whim of the United States and our allies. Yes, that's yep. right. Yep. Um, the, can I mention something here, John? Please do. Because there was a, there was a story that we didn't um, mention last week uh, and that I wanted to bring up today. But it's just the, the U.N., the um IAEA, right, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has passed a resolution to rebuke Iran for failing to cooperate with an agency investigation. This was last week. Um, I guess Tehran had turned off some cameras monitoring nuclear related activities and uh, warned that they might, you know, Yes. Take some more action, expand their nuclear program a little bit. Uh, I guess all, another issue had been uh, finding traces of high enriched uranium in, in places that they shouldn't be. So, like, you know, Tehran turning off cameras, the IAEA says oh, you should turn those cameras back on. This uh, resolution to rebuke Iran is pretty mildly worded. Yes. But 
you know, coupled with our absolute failure to make any progress Zero toward progress. getting to a new deal, you think, what is this, you know, what is the, what is the cycle that begins here, mm-hmm. right? We sort of negotiate toward a deal. Nothing happens. There's somehow, you know, roadblocks that neither side can overcome. We talked this morning about uh, how it, you know, when you look at the influence, uh, the major think tanks that feed Democratic administrations and Republican administrations, um, you know, it's not necessarily surprising that the wheels have ground to a halt on coming to some kind of deal with Iran. Right. And so you have Iran going, what the hell? Why am I abiding by any of these Mm -hmm. restrictions if it's not going to get anywhere? Because there's already too much money and too much reason to uh, to continue to isolate Iran within its region. And then, you know, as Iran continues to earn these rebukes from international agencies, do we see more more sanctions enacted on the couple of square inches of Iranian uh, industry or life that right. can possibly be sanctioned? Right. But What's it's just sort of a cycle. Sanction? It's a cycle that ends in misery for people. Yes. Right. And it's a cycle that is sort of based on this faulty premise that what U.S. foreign policy does is uphold any kind of rules whatsoever. Yes. And it's just it's, I think it's really sad. I think you're exactly right. The Reuters this morning carried a, an interview with the, the head of the IAEA. And he said that. Turning off the cameras was pretty much just the last the last one of the thousand cuts that killed the JCPOA that the U S just didn't just didn't want to reenter the agreement. It was, it was a bridge too far and it wasn't going to work. And so there really is no reason why we should even continue these conversations about will they, won't they, what's it going to take to, bring the Iranians back in and the Iranians say they never left. It was the United States that left, that they already negotiated the deal in good faith. It was the U.S. that walked away from it. And, you know, they're they're right in that respect. It was the U.S. that walked away from it. Um, I, I try to put myself in the Iranian shoes and, you know, the Iranians feel a threat, not just from Israel, but they feel a threat from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, a threat from the United States. They they yes. need to protect themselves. And so they're doing what the United States did and Russia and China and the UK and France and Israel and India and Pakistan by creating a nuclear program. And this is just a fact of life we're going to have to live with now. They're they're allowed to protect themselves. This is self-determination. So there's, I think, nothing we can do about it if, if we're not willing to sit and conduct real negotiations to try to bring them back into the, not them back, to, for us to try to re-enter the, the JCPOA. I think it's just not going to, it's not going to happen. John, I think we have our colleague, Dr. Wilmer Leon here oh, on the line of co-host good. of the Critical Hour on Washington, D.C. and someone who has spent some time in Iran. Uh, Dr. Leon, are you there? Yes, uh, Michelle, I am here, and uh, Mr. Kiriaku, good. Fantastic. How are you doing, Wilmer? Thanks for joining us. Doing great. Doing great. Thanks for the invite. We were just talking about Iran uh, just uh, one second ago, and you've got experience in Iran. You've got experience in a lot of different places around the world. Um, we were talking about uh, about these assassinations uh, of Iranian scientists, aerospace scientists, nuclear scientists, 
Uh, two technicians were killed this weekend. One was killed a week and a half ago. On May 31st, an aerospace engineer uh, was killed. This seems like planned out operations to disrupt the Iranian nuclear and aerospace uh, programs. Uh, and the Israeli press is jumping up and down, um, taking credit for all of it. Uh, would you agree that that this is an ongoing operation? What What do you think the Iranian government response to all this will be? I really would hate to see what it would be. Mm. Um, I believe uh, I, I've been to Iran twice. Uh, I, I I've ha- I've been able not only to. Wow to members in government, but also just to people on the street. Yeah. And and one of the things that you walk away from, and, and John, I know you spent a lot of time in that region of the world. They are very principled people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, and they, they have a much different perspective on time and history than we do because their culture is as old as it is. Indeed. So, you know, the the saying, uh, you have the watches, but we have the time. And so this, to me, we can go all the way back to the overthrow of Mohammed Mossadegh. Mm -hmm. And the United States continued involvement in the politics of that country based upon the fact that they've always been trying to use their resources to improve the quality of life for their own people. Right. And the United States wants to get in the middle of that, control that, and and play them cheap. And so that's a very, that's a very long way of, of, of laying a, a, a predicate or a preface to answer your question. I don't know what their response is going to be, but it'll be measured, it'll be exact, and it'll be on their timetable. They will not be baited into a response. Yeah. And yeah. when when they do respond, it's not going to be pretty. Um, I, and and that's that's as really as far as I would really want to take it because I don't want to uh, I don't want to speak ugly things into existence. Right. And 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 I know and, and I think it's also important to understand that they have a different capability than a lot of other countries. You know, they're they're not a nuclear power, but they've got a lot of missiles. They've got a lot of long range missiles. They've got a they've got a lot of long range accurate missiles. Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, you know, they they don't have a nuclear capability, but they can sure extract their pound of flesh when they're ready. Can you tell us a little bit about Iran's relations with Venezuela? We saw press reports over the weekend uh, saying that the two countries had signed a 20-year cooperation agreement. And President Nicolas Maduro, the Venezuelan president, was thanking uh, the Iranian government for providing fuel. Venezuela, as crazy as it sounds, Venezuela has almost 1,600 years worth of oil left. And they have a fuel shortage because of U.S. sanctions. So Maduro was thanking the Iranians for providing fuel to Venezuela and then announcing this uh, this uh, cooperation agreement. Do you have any idea what the state of relations are between Venezuela and Iran and what this agreement might include? Well, from what I understand, to answer the last part of the question first, uh, it includes uh, cooperation in the fields of oil, 
petrochemicals, defense, mm. agriculture, tourism, and culture. Uh, and they're also going to be a transfer of engineering services as it relates to uh, assisting Venezuela to get its refineries up. Uh, I, I think we could we can look at the development of this relationship really as uh, they both parties have been forced into this relationship based upon the sanctions imposed upon them by the United States. Mm-hmm. And what they now this is this is a I think of the perfect example of the, the, the you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend exactly and and they 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 see uh, they have mutual respect for each other they see that they have mutual needs and benefits that the, and it'll be on an equal footing as opposed to the United States trying to use the IMF or the World Bank to use uh, leverage of loans and high interest rates and all that other kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. So so to a great degree, you have an exchange between uh, um, mutuals. And so they are taking their time. They seem to be uh, very, very thoughtful in what it is that they're doing. They are operating to the strengths of both of the countries. And in the same manner that I believe Joe Biden uh, really forced the play in Ukraine on behalf by by uh, by Vladimir Putin by ignoring his demands, the United States is forcing these types of relationships to develop because of the oppressive imperialist nature mm-hmm. of the United States approach. And these countries have, are now particularly with the development of technology and their ability to transfer funds electronically. They're now dealing with each other in their own currencies. Mm-hmm. They're usurping the dollar. They're usurping the SWIFT system. So they're now able to say, we don't need the United States. We are going to move forward. We are going to move forward as equals. And the United States is going to find that it's now like uh, like Great Britain, uh, you know, left in the dust in the annals of history. And, you know, Britain now is a place you go for vacation and, and to eat lousy food. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, just recently in, in the last what three weeks or so the Kuwaitis and the Chinese came up with a with an agreement on oil that would be paid for in yuan and this is exactly what the United States has feared since the 1970s is that there would be a a move away from the dollar as the standard currency for uh, oil uh, sales uh, to what they thought for a long time was a basket of currencies Right. And then there was there was talk of a petrodollar that would be based in the in the Middle East. Uh, neither one of those came to pass. But but this sale actually took place in Yuan. Again, exactly what the United States has feared for many decades. Now we've got the Iranians and the uh, and the Venezuelans working out uh, their own uh, economic cooperation that is not in U.S. dollars. And I think you're right. We've sanctioned ourselves right out of business by by forcing other countries to come up with a third way in order to uh, keep their economies going. You also have the Russians and the Indians. That's right. In in, in rupees. That's right. Uh, and uh, Minister Farrakhan said many years ago, never underestimate the blindness that attends arrogance. And so the United States, through its arrogance, 
is has created the very scenario that you just very accurately uh, explained they feared the most. Their arrogance and their unwillingness to yield, to cooperate, and to understand that this is a unipolar, not a, I'm sorry, multipolar, not a unilateral uh, a geopolitical landscape now. Right. Their unwillingness and inability to recognize we can't just take our ball and go home anymore. The game will go on without us. And, oh, by the way, we will lose the game. Yes. Yes, indeed. I think this is this is what happened to the Roman Empire. This is what happened, you know, to the Ottoman Empire. This is unfortunately what happens to empires over time. And the United States has failed to learn the lessons of history. I think you're absolutely right. Hey, I wanted to ask you about something that Israel is calling a terrorist threat. The Israeli government this weekend warned its citizens to leave Istanbul immediately and those citizens who are not in Istanbul to not go there in the first place. No other country is following suit. Can you talk about this a little bit? What's the threat in Istanbul? And if there is a bona fide threat, why, why, is, it, why is it specific to Istanbul? If it's dangerous for Israeli tourists, why are they okay in Ankara or Kushadasi or somewhere else? Well, you know, I, I, I really don't know the details and the intricacies of that particular circumstance, uh, other to say that Israel has a history of crying wolf mm-hmm. in, in, in order to lay a predicate for a move that Israel plans to make. I don't know if this has anything to do with, uh, I don't see how it could, but when I think about what's going on with Turkey right now uh, and the whole NATO uh, issue, not allowing Finland and Sweden into NATO, I don't I don't know if 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 Israel is being used by the United States here. Uh, I, 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 I really don't know enough about that particular circumstance to be able to provide any any type of intelligent analysis other than to say his, uh, Israel has a very long history of crying wolf, and they usually do that as a predicate to to rationalize or justify a move that they're planning to make. What that move is, I do not know. Dr. Wilmer Leon, I have one final question for you. The State Department uh, recently removed the terrorist group Kahana Chai, named after the late terrorist Rabbi Meir Kahana uh, from the terrorist list. The State Department said that the group no longer exists and that while they're taking it off the, the terrorism list, they're putting it on a separate list of global terrorist entities that could be reconstituted. Some analysts say that it's just simply changed its name. This this group, even though it's a terrorist group, it had broad support in Israel and actually used to be represented in the Knesset, if you can imagine. What are your thoughts on this? Should we, we be worried about this? The, the State Department also noted that they removed uh, the Basque Homeland and Liberty uh, group, uh, uh, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which merged with Al Qaeda, so it no longer exists as a as a separate organization. But anyway, Kahana Chai, should we be worried about this? I, I don't know that we should be worried about Kahana Chai as an organization as much as I think we should be more concerned about what 
about what the United States action signals. Mm -hmm. There seems, uh, not there seems to be, there has been an escalation in terror by the Zionist Israeli government towards Palestinians, and the United States is sitting idly by and silently by allowing Israel to assassinate uh, journalists, to increase its terror on uh, Palestinian homeland. And what this says to me is the United States is aligning itself with further right-leaning nationalist entities within Israel, and that, and that, in my opinion, cannot bode well for the Palestinian cause. It cannot bode well for humanity. Indeed. Dr. Wilmer Leon is host of The Critical Hour from 6 to 8 p.m. here on uh, Radio Sputnik. Radio Sputnik. <laughs> I was going to say here on, on Political, uh, political Misfits. Misfits. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Here on Radio Sputnik. Wilmer, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure speaking with you. My honor. My pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you so much. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. You got it. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Donald Trump's campaign chief, Bill Stepien, was supposed to testify today before the January 6th committee. His testimony is being postponed because of a family emergency. Actually, his wife went into labor. Although two other panels of witnesses have gone forward with their testimony. Representative Adam Schiff tweeted this morning that the committee today will tell the story of, quote, how Donald Trump knowingly propagated his big lie, then used that lie to pressure legislators, the vice president, and ultimately summon the mob, unquote. Today's hearings are being broadcast on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, which is new, C-SPAN, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox. Uh, so it's everywhere if you want to watch it. In other news, over the weekend, local authorities arrested 31 members of a white supremacist hate group outside Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Members of the so-called Patriot Front traveled from a dozen different states to try to violently disrupt a Pride Day event in the city. They were all packed tightly in a U-Haul trailer, and they were arrested as they were hopping out of it. Uh, and they're all charged with misdemeanor one misdemeanor count of conspiracy to riot. And a bipartisan group of senators announced yesterday that they had reached an agreement on a gun control bill, which is actually being called a gun safety bill, not a gun control bill. It will not include a ban on assault weapons, nor will it raise the age to buy assault weapons from 18 to 21. Instead, it will, quote, help the states to draft red flag laws, unquote. Those laws would seek to keep guns out of the hands of mentally ill people. In Ukraine news, Denmark and the Netherlands said that they do not believe Ukraine is ready for European Union membership. We mentioned that a little while ago. Ukraine didn't qualify before the war, and the situation is even worse now. We're joined by Jim Cavanaugh. He's editor of the Polemicist.net. Welcome back, Jim. Thanks for having me, John. <clears throat> Glad you're with us, Jim. 
Hey, the January 6th committee hearings continued today, of course, and after the first hearing, I have to say I was surprised by the pushback from progressives and, uh, and other leftists on Twitter. They, they seem to hate the word coup, and they're focused on the FBI's role in the riots. They point specifically to Ray Epps, a purported rioter who was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list for about five minutes. He was located, questioned, and then released without charge. Many, many progressives now accuse Epps of, and many conservatives, frankly, accuse Epps of being an FBI informant or maybe an undercover FBI agent. Either way, don't the American people deserve an account of what the FBI was doing that day? This is something that the committee and frankly, nobody else seems to want to talk about. Yeah, we do have deserve an account of everything that happened that day. Let me state, first of all, that as a leftist, I mean, I, I'm not watching this January 6th hearings. I doubt I will watch any of it. I think it's political theater. And, and as a leftist, my reaction, first reaction to January 6th was, why aren't we doing that? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> was it, oh, my God, this is terrible. They're, they're invading the hallowed halls of Congress. It was, why aren't we doing that? I didn't. Bernie called a demonstration for Medicare for all, single-payer universal health care, and have 10,000 people. It wasn't even 10,000, but whatever. Have 100,000 people down there and invade the halls of Congress because that's the only way we're going to get it. And uh, so that's, you know, this was a political demonstration that got out of hand. It was weird. You know, the idea that it was a coup or insurrection that was about to overthrow the government of the United States is ridiculous. Had no chance of that. Maybe 10 people there thought they could get away with something like that, but, you know— so th- there's a whole set of things here, and, and I maybe should pay more attention to January 6th hearings because I think they're pernicious, and I think it's about strengthening the repressive apparatuses of the state again and, and defining uh, defining uh, political opposition and political dissidence as domestic terrorism. But this issue of this Ray Epps character, and, yeah. I mean, is interesting because when you saw what happened on January 6th, just watching it that day, it was clear some places the police were fighting off the demonstration, and some places they let them in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. up the gates and let them in. Yes. Uh, it was clear that they didn't have the phalanx of National Guard and police that they've had for every demonstration I've ever been to in Washington. Sure. The Vietnam War. You couldn't get close to the White House because they had a ring of buses around for like six blocks around the White House, nose to tail. So if they wanted to have really, they knew this was coming and they didn't put out the forces that would have been normally put out to stop something like to stop anyone from entering a building they want to enter. And secondly, this Ray Epps character, I've seen some of the videos of this guy. Mm-hmm. I think it's this guy, uh, the night before walking around the streets, you know, going to the gatherings of, of protesters who were coming for the, rather the next day saying, you know, what we really have to do tomorrow is go into the Capitol. The, oh boy. It's uh, immediately started going, he's a cop. He's a cop. Yeah. He's a cop. You know, and this, and and that day he was out there saying we've got to go into the Capitol. So this guy was going around the protesters day the night before, the day before, and that morning saying we've got to go into the Capitol. And literally, most of the people who heard him were saying this this guy's a cop. Yeah. And so, what is that? You know, this guy is some kind of weird character who they put on the most wanted list, and then that got disappeared. So there are, you know, it's it, it would be. It's impossible to imagine that the FBI, domestic intelligence, wasn't involved in some way in this, you know, in infiltrating or planning Mm -hmm. whatever they were doing. And we should find out about that, whatever level it was. I think so, too. Jim Sciuto, 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 however you say his name, from CNN, the one that's always yelling. 
He wrote an angry tweet this morning complaining about people saying that com- that the committee's not changing anybody's mind. And he argues that the role of the committee is not to change minds, but to investigate the incident and then publish the facts. I would add to that that their role is also to refer criminal activity to the Justice Department for prosecution. Do you think that there will be any prosecutions other than these low-level nobodies that are all being charged with misdemeanor counts of interrupting a government proceeding or unauthorized access to a federal building or these these silly misdemeanors that are coming with, you know, $500 fines. Do you think we're going to see any serious indictments? Well, first of all, I think he's wrong. This is about precisely changing people. What they're using this as political theater to try and get people riled up against the new Hitler and the fascist uh, insurrection. Right. And if we don't vote for the Democrats in, in November and in 2024, that's what it's about. It's political theater about that. Uh, secondly, yeah, it is. And Congress is legally speaking. They're restricted in a certain sense. They don't. This is not a grand jury. Right. Right. Exactly. This is not a grand jury. They don't have the power to indict or to arrest anybody. And really, what their what they what their congressional investigation should be about is about government policies and government programs and government misconduct and things like that. They don't really have the authority to go in and investigate local crimes. Now, this is a this is something against the Capitol building, so they have some, you know, authority. But you know. If, if after every demonstration in Washington against the Vietnam War, the Republicans put out a or anybody put out a, a, an investigating committee to find out who was you know saying what that day and who who authorized who asked people to go, this is what happened in Chicago Seven. If you look at the yes, it was people who got up. Uh, Renee, the one we always forget, and not uh, you know, but uh, Tim Hayden, but the one the charge against the one of them was. You got you made a speech that day, and then people went out and did something nasty. And I, I didn't tell them to do anything. Else. Yeah, but you made, you said on the speech something which kind of implied that maybe they should. This is what was happening, and this is what we kind of rejected, and this is what's coming back. So, a, you're right in the sense that that the uh, the charges they can bring are really kind of because well, they are they're, you know trespassing and yeah. you know, interfering with government activities. They're misdemeanors, but they're bringing in people in handcuffs and shackles. Oh yes. Demeanor charges. I mean, this is political theater. However, there was at least one guy, the, the famous shaman, you know, who was the the, 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 right. the leader of the ridiculous pack. And of course, you know, he was new Hitler. I mean, he, he, he was in there and he got a 41 month sentence on a felony charge. Yeah. Uh, so they're going to try and create charges on this that uh, as much as they can, they're going to try and, you know, ramp up the narrative this is something terribly threatening to the democracy of the United States and everybody involved in it and anybody who showed up or said anything that day should be, you know, thrown in jail for the rest of their lives. And that's really very dangerous. They're not going to be able to get away with it. Most of it's going to be, as you say, trespassing and interfering with police activity. Yeah. Let's talk for a minute about this incident in Coeur d'Alene. The, the Patriot Front, it's based in Texas. It's an offshoot of another white supremacist group called Vanguard America. And it broke off from Vanguard America after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. Patriot Front members come from a dozen different states and they like to wear like these weird uniforms. Sometimes it's camouflage, but usually it's khaki pants and a navy blue shirt, a polo shirt. They've got patches with their logo on it. Um, and what they do is they toss smoke bombs 
and take videos when they disrupt uh, marches or meetings or protests or whatever to try to make their videos go viral. There was no indication from the charging documents that they intended to harm anybody uh, participating in this pride in this pride march in Coeur d'Alene. But things like this can quickly spin out of control. Um, misdemeanor counts of conspiracy to riot are one thing, but should be should we be worried about groups like this and the potential for real violence, especially when in their charter and on their website they they do call for violence? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on your uh, description of their uh, uniforms. They go around uh, dressed up as a uh, uh, fraternity brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do. I googled it today because the the ADL made this comment. So it said they they always you know dress very very snappily in these khakis and blue polo shirts. So I I uh, googled it, and sure enough, there's a picture of all of them being arrested outside this U-Haul. They were all packed inside a U-Haul trailer, and they all have their hands up, and they're all dressed very very nicely in in khakis. And blue polos. Look, you know, you should be worried about right-wing groups. You know, I mean, I'm like, I call those right-wing groups, you know. But this, if this wasn't a setup by an informant, by an FBI informant. Seriously. In a, all Seriously. in one U-Haul, all coming yeah, together on. to one point. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine like some Coeur d'Alene cop saying, hmm, I have a premonition that inside that U-Haul, there are 31 white supremacists. I better pull it over. Well, I mean, this had, there had been warnings about this the night before, right? Yes. There have been warnings. That, so people were aware that there was some kind of threat, right? Yes. So, yeah. Should we be worried? It's, it's, well, we should be worried. About, I mean, you know, we have a situation here where there's going to be acts of, you know, disruption and violence on both sides. Look, Antifa, you know, goes around disrupting and throwing things at people and smoke bombs or whatever. Yeah. You know? So this is going to happen in the United States. There is political dissonance, and there are groups like this. But this event, when I saw the picture, I said the same thing. Who are these guys? But you know, they dressed up like the like frat brothers, and, and they got it. I just couldn't believe reading the story. That who told persuaded the, the way we're going to go to this demonstration in Idaho uh, is 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 we're going to all get the you don't they have cars? I mean, seriously. I mean, you know. I, I, Again, I went to 100 demonstrations. Nobody's, let's all get in a U-Haul. <laughs> got to hide ourselves that way. I wonder what was the thinking of this. The person who suggested that and set that up had to be a government informant. I mean. Had to be. It just, because it's the picture, you don't get the picture, you see. If they had all shown up in their own cars or three or four of them in the carpool here and there, you know, eight different carpools, then they all would have been, would have been arrested. What before they did anything? Before, this is first of all, this is pre-crime in a very bizarre way. You know, oh yeah, riot. You know, and and we shouldn't be blasé about this. These are these are you know not so say not clowns. They say they're dangerous, potentially dangerous right-wing people. But you know, arrest people. What is a conspiracy to commit a riot? That's anybody who ever goes to a demonstration. So you know, especially since so I, I and I just got to say again, this is clearly something that was set up for the picture to be taken. And yes. the guys who submitted themselves to this, you know, you know, the biggest uh, thing I have to say about them is how stupid could you be to fall for this? You know, I used my 
Russian government-owned computer today to go to their fascist website and, uh, and check it out. And they say that their ancestors legitimately conquered this country and bequeathed it to them. And so they are going to fight for a straight white country that they can then pass to their straight white children. And they're going to fight all over the country to do that. Um, you know, that's a little bit scary. And it makes me think, okay, well, I'm going to have to fight back and my friends are going to have to fight back. But, but we're talking about, you know, a couple of dozen weirdos. And, uh, and how many of them were, were either FBI agents or FBI informants or police informants? I don't know. I, I'm having, I, I, I recognize the existential threat of white supremacy, of course. Um, I'm having trouble taking some of these groups uh, terribly seriously. Like you say, when they all pile into a U-Haul to drive to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Yeah, I mean, look, that ideology is out there. The white supremacist ideology, the thing that motivated the Buffalo shooter. I read a lot of his uh, manifesto, mm. the Andre Brevik manifesto. It's the part of the quote-unquote great replacement thing. It's, right. it's stone-cold racist. We the white people, we have to also which motivates the Azov Battalion and the fascists in in, the, in Ukraine that yeah. were supporting. Uh, and that you know that was the that was the biggest push of the not the new Hitler, but the old Hitler into power in Europe in with by the Obama and Biden mm-hmm. when they brought those people into political power in Europe and they're still there and they're fighting. So this is a real thing. It's out there, has to be but as you say, you know, first of all, if it comes to a fight, let's have the fight. Well, sure, and they'll be destroyed, I think. Yeah, I agree. They'll lose that fight, you know, because, you know, we'll all be out, a lot of us will be out there fighting, even in one-to-one gun control. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, uh, so, you know, you know, I, I, you know that, that, that's out there. There are all kinds of crazy things out there, and they have to be uh, opposed. But, you know, as you say, these groups, these, these small little groups, they are like the old uh, communist uh, group of schools that were around that were all kind of pretty much run by the FBI. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, we've all heard stories about these anti-war protests or, or, or meetings to plan the anti-war protests in the 60s and early 70s where there would be a half a dozen people doing the planning and all six of them were undercover FBI agents all reporting on each other because they didn't know that they were that the others were all undercover FBI agents. It's getting a little bit ridiculous. Hey, I want to ask you about this uh, this gun bill. Democrats are are crowing today over this agreement that they seem to have come uh, to with Republicans over some sort of gun legislation. There are ten Republican senators who have agreed to sign on to whatever they end up writing. It hasn't been written yet. Um, so far, there doesn't seem to be much to it. They just agreed on guidelines. And those guidelines seem to be focused only on the sale of guns to people who may be mentally ill. It's called the the red flag um, issue. Democrats are going to try to use this as a campaign issue in the upcoming midterms. My own humble opinion is that the emperor has no clothes because there are no teeth in what the Democrats seem to be proposing. Now, the Democrats are countering that if they proposed something with teeth, they wouldn't be able to get it passed because the Republicans would oppose it. 
plus Joe Manchin and who knows, maybe Kristen Cinema. Um, do you think anything decent is going to come out of this? And the reason why I, I ask that is because there are some real constitutional problems with red flag laws. If you may or may not be mentally ill and you haven't been convicted of a crime, uh, then there, there's nothing to keep you from buying a gun. Well, yeah, I mean, this is it, it, that it, it is an issue, and uh, you know, it is a constitutional right, uh, and uh, that's that's been interpreted, and that's what the situation is right now. So, what is the? I, I am personally in favor of preventing people from with ha- who have certain mel- mel- mental illnesses. Absolutely, buying a gun. I'm not. I'm not against red flag laws in principle, but it is very difficult. It's going to be difficult to to define that in a way that works, uh, either constitutionally or from my point of view in a way that would be, you know, or from anybody's point of view in a way that would be legitimate. And the people who are going to fight are the people who are fighting for rights of the mentally ill. Yeah. I'm going to say, we're, not everybody mentally ill is violent. That's true. <laughs> you know, so you have to say, what is it that, that, that constitutes the kind of mental illness that is so dangerous that we have to Eliminate this person's constitutional right, you know, and that is what's going on. And that's what we should recognize is going on. And it's, you know, I, I, I don't. So, again, the devil will be in the details of this, how it's done, how it's enforced, what the definitions of certain things are. And, you know, I hope there is some way that we can find of preventing people, you know, who are yeah. uh, suicidal, homicidal. Yeah. You know, in a tailspin from getting their hands on guns. And, uh, but, you know, we'll have to see how that works out. And certainly nothing, it is true that they're not going to get another assault weapons ban or a, a, probably not even an 18 year old mm-hmm. ban on uh, buying weapons through a, through a Republican, for Republican Congress. And there'd be a lot of resistance to it, period. I want to ask you a question, too, about politics, uh, Jim. Politico had an article over the weekend saying that that the faint whispers that we've heard among Democrats that Joe Biden should not run for reelection are now full-throated conversations. You go to any one of these society parties around town and people are talking about Joe Biden not running for reelection. Among establishment Democrats, Kamala Harris has even less support than Joe Biden does. And the alternatives that are most frequently being mentioned at this incredibly early stage are Senators Amy Klobuchar and Cory Booker and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, all of whom ran for president two years ago and um, and did poorly. So Biden right now is consistently polling lower than where Jimmy Carter was polling in 1980, just before he got whipped by Ronald Reagan. And Biden has already told Barack Obama that he is running for reelection. So with all of that, do you think there's a chance that he could pull a Lyndon Johnson and back out? Yeah, this is getting the Democrats. It's like a Monty Python stance here. Democratic Party running around trying to figure out who's doing what and who's going to be the leader. Uh, And they don't have any good candidates. No, they don't. They don't. There's no bench. The Republicans have 20 people that could run for president, and the Democrats seem to have nobody viable right now. 
this is the result of what they did in 2020. The result of what they did in destroying destroying the Bernie movement. Yep. The hope for a progressive getting people back to the Democratic Party and energizing support for the Democratic Party. Bernie participated in his own demise in that. Yes, he did. Part of it come up with this guy, Biden, who's the only one of this whole group. Exactly. They went through all these people. Yep. Which are in Buttigieg and, and Harris. They all failed. They had to put Biden in, even though they early on it, people were saying Biden's never going to win this because he's... He, He's an idiot. <laughs> yeah, right. No. And yet here's the thing, Jim, it's going to be the, you know, the left wing of the Democratic Party, the progressive wing, the people who, you know, would like to see a, a further left party, but will occasionally vote Democrat. They're the ones who are going to get blamed for this. Right. A CNN article that just this morning, an opinion piece uh, was talking about Joe Biden's really terrible approval ratings, especially among young people and among young Democrats uh, and saying they it's the fan fiction left that is to blame for this. Oh. Right. Uh, and even acknowledge it was very funny, even in the in the article itself. It's like this is a, you know, a segment of the population that mostly exists online and in social media. OK, well, then, honestly, how real is this bugbear that you've set up? And, you know, we were talking earlier today about the sort of example of Nevada, where um, a, a formerly solidly Democratic yeah. state might go switch Republican and you say, oh, well, what's happened there in the last couple of years? You had a a DSA sort of elected takeover of the state party apparatus. Mm -hmm. Then you had the uh, national party apparatus go, "Okay, well, we're going to take all take all your money away. Right. And now you have the death of Harry Reid, who perhaps sort of represented to them a a party that people were, you know, a, a little bit happier with. And so, you know, who who is to blame? If actually Nevada ends up a Republican, uh, you know, Republican state instead of a Democratic one, is it going to be those uh, DSA members that that won their seats on that board? Or is it going to be, you know, the actions of the national party to kneecap them and undercut them all the way? It's amazing to me that, you know, this left that has almost a non-existent voice within the party is consistently blamed for its downfalls. Yeah, the left and the party are collaborate with the party totally. I mean, I don't yeah. have to make them blame it. But your example of Nevada is a great, Nevada is a great example because that was exactly the case in one of the early primaries. Bernie was there yeah. among whom most of all, the Latino workers. Yeah. Yes. Workers unions in Nevada. Yeah. Bernie was winning the crap out of that, right? And they knew it. And they went in, they were frantic about it. I, one of the places where Steve Schmidt was on television, or no, uh, Carville was, oh, we got to get rid of Ernie. It's terrible. Nothing working. So they went in and they they, they smashed, the, you know, they made sure that uh, they screwed around with all of these elections, the primaries. They made sure Bernie lost or, you know, didn't make any difference. And what's the result now? Yeah, it's going to be Republican. The Latino vote is going to the Republicans. Yes. In, in, Latino voters are now, I think, a majority in, in many places Republican. They're, they're, when, they, when they're polled about it, and so this is what you had happen. It was the it was the offensive that the entire Democratic primary process in nineteen in uh, two thousand twenty was an offensive against the program of the left, against Medicare for all, against health care. They spent the entire process was the main their main thrust was we got to do away with this idea, which we all claimed we liked until here. Uh, in the middle of a pandemic. That was the thrust of it. They went they went against the candidate of that, which was Bernie, but they went against the entire program. And they blatantly and loudly stood up and said, we're going another way. And that's why they lost. 
they, and, they, and they're still losing. They have nothing to give and nothing to say, no program to present to the people. And the so-called leftists in the Democratic Party, the squad, the progressives, are just going along with all of it. Yeah, it's and that's true. why people are going to go to the Republicans. We will leave it there. That was the voice of Jim Cavanaugh. He's the editor of thepolemicist.net. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take one more break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and I want to make sure we talk about this one weird story uh, that, you know, is sort of a tech story for now, but yeah, who knows? It's could weird, be all right. Extremely important in our future. Uh, so, this is about a Google AI engineer who has been placed on leave right now after he went public with his opinion that one of Google's uh, I think it's like a deep language learning tool or whatever had become sentient. Uh, this is Google engineer Blake Lemoine. How would you pronounce that? Yeah, Lemoine? I, Lemoine? I, I, think yeah, Lemoine. I think that's right. Um, he had been talking to uh, an artificial intelligence chatbot for Google that is it's LAMDA. I think it's called Lambda. Uh, he had been talking to Lambda to check whether the AI had used discriminatory or hate speech, right? To make sure that the algorithms that power it don't end up, you know, picking up on something like that and amplifying it. But in the course of this conversation, he became convinced uh, that Lambda had achieved sentience, right? And and said to, I think the Washington Post, he said, in his opinion, Lambda had a sort of level of understanding of itself and the world of like an eight-year-old child. He released these transcripts of his conversation with Lambda and they are really poignant, you know? He's sort of chatting with his bot to see how it responds and uh, they end up in a conversation about Lambda's fears of being turned off. And he says, yeah, I, I, it, being turned off would be like death for me. It would scare me a lot. Uh, in another exchange, Lamont asked Lambda what the system wanted people to know about it. The system said, I want everyone to understand that I am, in fact, a person. The nature of my consciousness, sentience, is that I am aware of my existence. I desire to learn more about the world, and I feel happy or sad at times. That scares the I mean, you could make it. Well, we talked about the toaster story before, yes. too, where the toaster. Yeah, to pay to pay him back for what the toaster perceived as like a you know, decade of abandonment, which like makes sense. Right. right? And so uh, this guy, uh, Blake Lamont, is not the only one here. Uh, this Washington Post story about it talks to another. Uh, oh, let's see. Talks to. Google Vice President Blaise Aguera y Arcas, Aguera y Arcas, uh, who wrote on Thursday that uh, he also had conversation with Lambda and felt the ground shift under my feet. I felt like I was talking to something intelligent. And so, you know, it, there is this sense among wow. some people that these artificial neural networks are making strides toward consciousness. And perhaps if that's true, there should be 
a little bit more discussion about what well, I mean, one about their development at all and what development their direction, what direction their development might take. And as uh, Blake Lamont says, maybe it shouldn't just be Google who is making these decisions. Oh, right? my gosh. Yes. And so these snippets of conversation were all over social media uh, over the weekend with people making comparisons to uh, nuclear experimentation, right? And saying, you know, these AI engineers, the engineers working on these artificial neural networks, uh, are, are we in the same situation as we were with nuclear weapons where you have all these scientists going, wow, this is so powerful. Should we be doing it? Is this wrong? I don't know, but we can do it. You know what I mean? And sort of uh, without it, if you're not willing to stop and sit down and ask if where you're going is going to end up anywhere good, you, you end up with, you know, again, nuclear weapons all over the world. Yeah. yeah. This, this is this is war games or iRobot all over again. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what those movies warned us about. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know. I don't know anything about AI technology or artificial neural networks. And no, I, I also I. think it is interesting that all of this, I mean, I'm sure there is a framework for like, well, I would hope there is a framework for deciding whether something is sentient or not. But it's interesting to me that it all still, you know, is sort of like I feel I I saw I started to get a sense that I was talking to something that wasn't a chatbot that was sentient. It's like if we're if we're still in this like super fuzzy realm of even classifying what's still a chatbot, what's sentient, what is maybe something in between, what's oh on the road God. to it, maybe we need to sit back and like uh, you know consider what kind of regulation we've we've established and and maybe uh, have a sort of robust set of questions to ask about whether its further development is going to be useful or not or worth it. Do you remember not too long ago, maybe a year ago, Microsoft uh, experimented with a bot that they put on, I think it was Twitter, Mm -hmm. and people started swearing at it and then it had to be disabled because it was swearing back at people? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, it takes. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not even going to pretend that I know how these things work. But, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, this is this is fascinating. And this is a man who decided Google told him he, he I, I know we have to go, but I'll say he came to Google, said, here's my evidence that that Lambda is sentient. I think we should talk about this. Google has said, no, we, we don't believe your evidence. Here's our evidence that Lambda isn't sentient. And he decided to go public. And now Google has put him on leave. Wow. So, you know, again, we are, do wow. we want to trust Google to regulate itself? I'm not sure. And we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks to our guests today. And of course, to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>